moral wisdom for a deeper human life, shared insights. Welcome to All Things Intriguing with your host, Dr. Ray Newkirk. That's me. We're on Applied Moral Wisdom, Episode 10, our last episode of the series, and we're doing a summary of it by looking at some of the hallmarks of the milestones of each, I guess, episode. And we're on Part 6 of the summary. The prerequisite for Applied Moral Wisdom is a well-formed conscience, right? We've talked about that. Do you remember the importance of conscience, the difference between a conscience of a child and a conscience of adult? And that conscience sometimes has a little to do with age, but has more to do with depth and understanding and view. Conscience that characterizes the maturity of adulthood. That's what we're talking about. Some children can be very adult at the age of 15. Some adults can be very childish at the age of 40. We made that point earlier on. The principles of right action guide the application of moral wisdom. The principles of right action guide the application of moral wisdom. Those are ethical principles. Those are statements of morality. It's an answer to the question about what kind of person do I want to be? You know? Conscience is never perfect. Remember we talked about that? It's developing in process constantly. And it doesn't stand still. It can fall backwards. We all err. And previous learning and other influences can hinder the development of an informed conscience. We all make mistakes. Remember that lady I told you about? They wouldn't listen to her doctor, and she died. Fear commonly impedes the development of conscience. Did you know that? That's what was bothering her. She was afraid. She didn't want to accept the doctor's truth. She was afraid. Didn't get a second opinion or a third opinion. She thought she knew better. She had invincible ignorance that cost her her life. Well, that's just... Unbelievable, right? That such a nice person can have that one thing not developed to the point where it can save her life. She had the help. She had the doctor. She had the medicine. Everything she could have had to save her life. She had children that she loved. She had a boyfriend that she was crazy about. But this one thing, this one thing, what was it? What was she afraid of? She was so afraid of being ill with a bad heart? Did she let it kill her? Did it immobilize her action? You know, it's very likely. You ever meet those people that are just afraid to be wrong? They have to be right. There's so much at stake in their minds. They create this thing in their minds. They got to be right. They got to be right. They got to be right at all cost, even to the end of their life. You know, I used to have a clinic, a family nutrition and stress management clinic when I was younger. I would do something besides computers in my life, besides physics and science. And I was trained as a behavioral scientist. That was one of my doctorates. I had several. Like I said, I've been in school all my time. I was one of the co-founders of the American Society of Nutritionists. Back then, 
medical doctors weren't doing much about nutrition at all. They're letting you get sick, right? And then they'll treat you. But I started this group called the American the Society of American Nutritionists, co-founder of the guy out in L.A. And we came up with our own brand, and we did health foods, and we got into all that stuff. And, and I told you the story about this lady that walks in to see me one time. She was so, so big. And I had a double double door. You know, my doors were so big, I had a double door in my clinic where you could walk in. Well, she had barely get. She had to turn sideways to get in both doors. She was there with somebody who wanted her to be there, who loved her. I remember what she said to me. She didn't think she had a weight problem. So I asked her how she felt. Oh, it was so hard to get up in the morning. She felt just terrible, but it had nothing to do with her weight. She, she, she knew that because she knew herself. And she was short. She weighed over 300 pounds and she was less than five foot tall. Can you believe that? And she claimed she wasn't overweight. She was morbidly obese. Her prognosis was really bad about having a healthy, long life. And she told me if she didn't love her kids so much, she wouldn't be there. She was wider than she was tall, almost. If you can imagine a thing like that, it's probably a little bit of an exaggeration, huh? But I remember I, in my clinic, I had this thing where I would refer people to specialists for certain problems. You know, because I couldn't treat everything and I was not an MD. as a behavioral scientist. And so I spent time with this woman. She was making progress. And the thing that I knew about her was she didn't know what it was to feel good. She thought this was normal to feel so absolutely bad. She walked so slow. If you walked the block with her, she'd have to rest. You know? And we came out you know, with what we had to do to help her. And as she began to lose weight, and you know you have to be careful with people that big because it's so hard on their heart and their physiology that you can't shock their system. It's got to be a very gentle treatment, a very gentle way of life. A small change here and a small change there. And when they start to feel better, they want to feel more better. Pardon me, more better. They want to feel better more rapidly. So it catches on and then after they lose about 100 pounds, which is a big, big thing, that's, half, that's a third of their body weight, and they felt so much better, they couldn't believe it. Just couldn't believe it. And... uh that's when change would occur. If you want to know about change, here's the way it works. Especially in psychotherapy. People will not change till they hit rock bottom. They can't go any further till they really can't stand it. You see, when people first come into psychotherapy, they lie all the time because they want to manipulate the therapist to have them relate to them in a certain kind of way. It takes a while to work that through before you get them to actually connect with you, to actually see what's going on. I once had a classmate. We were going to an honor symposium in Harvard one year, driving from Dayton, Ohio. 
and she was very, very overweight, and you couldn't walk far with her at all. And I remember one day we were at a restaurant. Now, when she would order, she would always order the supersized double-decker hamburgers, and it would be gone. And she'd eat so fast she'd get winded. And the thing that I remembered about her before we got to Harvard is that if somebody came in that was overweight or a little bit overweight, she'd make fun of them. She'd call them names. Look at that person. I can't believe how gross they are. I can't believe, oh, they're really big. And she'd laugh at them. And she was usually bigger. She was so big that she'd have to help with her shoes. She couldn't, she had trouble putting her shoes on. She had had the special shoes because she, she couldn't reach down. She couldn't see them. And if she had shoelaces, she couldn't tie her shoelaces. Her husband would tie her shoelaces for her. husband idolized her and wanted her to be healthy. And she was a really nice lady. Except she had that problem. And uh, I remember walking to the campus with her at Harvard there. And she couldn't go very far. But yet, she didn't think she was like those people she laughed at. And she really wasn't. She was much worse. You know? I, I went on this honors thing with her for the summer and did some work at Harvard and all that stuff with her. She's a very, very smart lady. But she would not slow down when she ate. She always ate more than she needed or wanted. She always... Just always have a lot. And when I would talk to her, she never really felt good. She couldn't understand why. She just felt generally bad. She ached all over, hungry all the time. She had some clinical problems that could have been mitigated. So we went there and we drove back together. And Then I didn't see her much after that, didn't run into her many more times. But I do remember how cruel she was to people. That were overweight. Isn't that interesting? That's intriguing, right? Well, so conscience is never perfect. We all err. And previous learning and other influences can hinder the development of an informed conscience. So what had this lady learned in her life that interfered with her conscience? That she didn't see herself when she looked in the mirror. But she saw everybody else. You'd be surprised how fear undermines the human being. We have such strange fears that can block our view of reality. We can be so scared of the truth that we develop a career as a liar and go into the media. Some of these networks. I would love to meet some of these people on these networks and just really have a talk with them with nobody listening. Because they're so fearful. And they make a living. They can't be happy with what they do and how they live their life. These are behavioral things. I hear people say things that are so absolutely lack of depth and so uninsightful. It tells me about their principles and how badly they're connected to moral reality. I'm making judgments. There's something that went wrong, as my girl would say when she was a little girl at four or five years old. Daddy, they made a wrong turn with their mind. 
She even knew that at four or five years old. I didn't have to tell her. She could see that in people herself. That's how obvious it was. So, hello. Thanks for listening. Welcome to my podcast. It will be far-ranging, challenging, surprising, insightful, informative, and even interesting. It is brought to you by Systems Medicine Institute in Orlando, Florida. Check us out at www.smirsp.com. We'll be glad if you do. Be happy if you do. How's that? I do not wish merely to be thought of as a good person. Thank you if you think I'm a good person. Rather, I wish to be a good person. Isn't that better? I would rather be a good person than just be thought of as a good person. Now, I know other people out there that spend a lot of energy, a lot of effort to be thought of as a good person, but when you know them, they're not, right? You can say, you tell them, you should be in the movies and get an Academy Award for your acting. Excuse me, let me get a drink of water. Ah, that sure is good water. So I do not wish merely to be thought of as a good person. Rather, I wish to be a good person. You know, an interesting thing about getting informed in life, about having moral wisdom and developing that and developing your conscience and applying it and simplifying your life is you don't want the burden to be judgmental. You don't want the burden to carry around negative feelings and negative moods. You see? I used to tell my employees or the people that work for me and with me, that if you find a problem, you bring it to me, also recommend a solution. Don't bring me a problem without a solution. Till I, one time I met a person who created the problem. would never bring you a solution. Do you know Newkirk's Law 137.54? Law number 137.54? Do not use the person who created the problem to solve the problem because they're already doing the best they can do. They will just make a bigger problem. Some people gravitate towards the messes because they like to build them. When people are already doing the best they can do, they have to be taught better habits of the mind and the will. If they're really bad, at creating problems are really good at creating problems and making things bad for everybody. Don't call on them to help you out of the situation. You just dig in a deeper hole. What law was that? Number New Newkirk's law number what? But the point I'm trying to make is this. Be very careful what you ask people to do who are having a tough time. Some people go their whole lives just make it tough for everybody else. And they don't even know they're doing it because nobody has the heart to tell them. So you don't tell them. You work with them to create better solutions. You know? So I do not wish merely to be thought of as a good person. Now can you see why I want to be a good person? Because it's easier. Because it's easier. Because you get into the solving of problems and working with people to find better solve uh, solutions, better problem solving, right? 
was I, I read sometime. Do you remember reading that it takes more muscles to frown than it does to smile? That if you smile more than you frown, you'll have less wrinkles in your face when you get older? A lot of crazy things like that floating around. How good is your memory? I'm sitting there right now, and I can remember when I was in the third grade, I lived in England. I'm reading my reading book. And it's a book about a person on a train going somewhere. And they're looking out the window. And I remember that in the book very clearly. This is a sign I'm getting older. Huh? My memory can remember so much when I was so young. But I remember the story very clearly because I remember that clear. That person always smiled a lot. Somebody commented on the train, the conductor. But he was so glad to see her on the train again because her smile warmed him up. And the person on the train was a young child, about 10 years old, with her mother, who smiled a lot too. The little girl had learned to smile from her mother. You see, things are contagious, especially good things. And if you look at society, it made a wrong turn with its mind. You know, people do not understand what they reveal about themselves just by the music they choose and they like. You know? Sometimes people ask me, Ray, do you like this and that? And I say to them, are you writing a book? Do I get any royalties? You know, sometimes some wise guy, right? So think about yourself. What kind of person do you want to be? I have never met anybody that told me they want to be a bad person. But I have had people tell me they enjoy upsetting others. They get a lot out of it. They get a charge out upsetting people. Have you ever met anybody like that? I have. I've met people just like that. Yeah. And they, they actually get a charge out of it. Now, you know what the virtue of an informed conscience is all about? Not being that kind of person, right? The discussion about right action versus conscience is historical, my friends. We've been having this discussion since the cavemen started selling dinosaur steaks. All right? Of course, they didn't do that. But... It's been a long, hard debate about right action and the role of conscience. For example, can a person still be good if that person calmly violates an ethical rule like telling lies is bad? Can an internal moral monitor be at odds with one's informed conscience? You can make a moral decision based on the education of your conscience and you can still feel bad. You feel like it just doesn't seem like that's the right decision. I know if I make this decision, it's highly moral and the other one isn't. But if I do make this decision, why am I feeling so lousy? Because you have a conflict of the good, don't you? One good and another good. One good says don't lie. And the other good says don't hurt somebody's feelings. So you have to tell the truth that somebody doesn't want to hear 
without making them feel good, uh, making them feel bad. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes the truth is say yes when you mean yes, no when you mean no. You know? So when I say internal monitor, I'm talking about your feelings now. How you feel. How you feel at odds with your informed conscience. It's like when you come, bless me, Father, for I've sinned. I told a sin, uh, I told a lie the other day. Some lady asked me if she looked bad, and I says, no, you look great, and she really looked terrible. I can work vice versa. I told this guy he really looked great when he's just awful. Is that bad? Hmm. So what's the higher good? What's the higher good? You see? Can't commit suicide, but if you jump on a hand grenade to save your squad, what have you done? Giving your life for your friend. You're still causing your death by jumping on the grenade. You're not running from it, but you're saving 10 lives. And you're a hero and you get a medal after you're gone. And in history books, you've been a brave person, but more than that, scriptures say he who lays down his life for his friend, no greater love has a person. Sign of great, great love. So you have to have an informed conscience. You must know the situations and you must be able to evaluate them. And you're not just a rule maker and a rule breaker. Isn't that what the song? Wasn't there a song like that in the 80s about rule breaker and rule maker and all that stuff? Remember one time I talked about the 80s and the 70s? I remember the 70s well because it was the time of slogan. We had a new language in America called sloganese. Hey, Ray, how you doing? I'm doing fine. I'm doing my thing. I'm hanging in there. I'm doing what I got to do. How about you, Helen? Oh, Ray, I'm doing what I got to do. I'm doing my thing. I'm hanging in there. People talk like that all the time. What would you rather do or drag a board? Hey, I'd rather drag a board. What about you? What would you rather do? I'd rather have a beer on a Sunday than go to a football game if there was no beer. Those are the kind of conversations we would have. And the other thing that was really big is the dancing craze. What did they call that? And boy, this was really big. And people would practice in front of the mirror. After hour, after hour, after hour, these kids would get in front of a mirror and look how they dressed. And they would look at their moves and how smooth they were. Girls and guys both would for hours practice in front of mirrors to see who is the champion narcissist, right? There was a group called the Bee Gees, Right? About dancing, staying alive with that movie. And we're out there. Wow. Disco was what it was called. I'm sure a lot of you remember that. It was really great. It was a lot of fun. But some people only lived for disco. I know kids that dropped out of school and played hooky so they could practice in front of the mirror instead of going to school. Because disco was the thing. It was in. And their mothers would laugh and say, aren't they cute? Just wonderful. And they were cute. And I liked the music. Right? Wow. What a time that was. So, in morality and in ethics and things like that, it's not always easy to have an informed conscience. Because we're tugged by our internal monitors. What we feel. Think about it. Sometimes what you feel, 
You don't know whether you're coming or going. It's right or wrong. Sometimes you don't know how to answer a political situation. A lot of people don't like to tell people who they voted for. They got a lot of sense. You know? The internal moral monitor is the moral gate that evolves throughout your life. It evolves in reaction to the behavioral interjections one receives from parents, special friends, and other authority figures such as pastors and police officers and teachers. Remember interjection? I gave you an example. When I was a little boy, my dad said, go wash your hands before you eat. So when my little girl was little, I said to her, go wash your hands before you eat. Didn't even question it. I was taught that. I did it. It was part of who I am. It was an interjection that guided my behavior without thought. It wasn't necessarily a virtue. It wasn't a habit of the intellect or a habit of the will. It was an interjection. Transactional analysis people talk about this, especially in redecision therapy, where you have a chance to make new decisions in your life by getting rid of the old baggage that holds you back. Isn't that great? What is the number one reason you think people should go to psychotherapy? They think it's because people are disturbed. It's not true. To learn about oneself. Psychoanalysis was about spending a lot of time learning to know thyself. A lot of times you just might want to know why you do things. Try and figure it out. Or what your strengths are. How you can grow and progress. Go to therapy. Don't go to therapy just because you're miserable and you think you got a psychodynamic problem. No. Learn about yourself. Learn about your behavioral interjections, the things that influence you that came from outside that become part of you without you even knowing where it came from. Right? And redecision therapy allows you to make new decisions in your life where you can get rid of the old decisions you made that were harming you. You remember that girl I talked about one time that was in therapy? Because she had ugly toenails and she thought the guys would make fun of her at the beach. She lived in Fort Lauderdale. Never went to the beach. Because she was afraid people would make fun of her toenails. And there was nothing wrong with them, I don't believe. Nobody really cares. You think a guy is going to go down the beach and look at a girl in a bikini and say, Wow, she's got ugly toenails. She thought that. But did she really? What did she really think? That was her excuse for not going to the beach. But she worked it out in therapy because she learned about her interjections. I once knew a successful businessman. I wouldn't even call him that. He was an executive in a major, major bank who helped change the history of the world in banking. No kidding. A client of mine became a good friend. Driving down the road one day, he used to tell me how his aunt would tell him he would be nothing but a ditch digger. Remember talking about that? Look at if you're a ditch digger, that's okay. You're going to stay healthy and it's going to keep you strong. And you earn your income. But she didn't mean it in a nice way. She meant it that it wasn't going to amount to anything. But he became a major vice president for one of the largest banks in the country, if not the world at the time. It was bought out by an even bigger bank because he developed an information information system led the implementation of it that made virtual banking possible. He was the very first executive in business history to actually implement 
Russia Banking, 24-7 banking from your home, and real-time updates of your accounts. See, they were really never updated in real time. They were always batched, even back then. And people thought you could go to the ATMs, but the ATMs didn't update your accounts, except your ATMs were updated, but not your actual accounts in the bank and the big databases. He led the project that changed all of that, called the RTPS. Brilliant, brilliant guy. He had to overcome his interjections. Right? I still keep in touch with him. And that RTPS was back in 1991, folks, around that time frame. So internal moral monitor is the moral gate that evolves throughout life, continually evolves. In reaction to the behavioral interjections one receives from parents, special friends, and other authority figures such as pastors. Personal censorship and control is grilled into people from childhood and even beyond. Wow. Think military, right? March, march, march. Left face, right face. Do this, don't do that. By habit, you have to be good at it or you're dead. If you goof up. So you learn how to be wise. Personal censorship. Watch what you say. Watch what you do around people. And your personal control is grilled into you from childhood. Don't say that. Don't do that. You know? You learned that from childhood. Think about it. All the things you never thought about, you never questioned. I see it on TV a lot from these from these people that have these media shows. Like, what's this? There's this group of women, one of these TV shows, and there's these people on it, and they talk and they give you their opinions. And Whoopi Goldberg's on that show. That's not even her real name, but they have these people on that show, and they say these things are supposed to be profound, and they make a living doing that. They're basically sitting there, and they're. Remember when I. When I was a little kid, I, we used to have clotheslines outside before washer and dryers. And the women would do the laundry. And you'd have fences separating the yards. And they'd lean over the fences. And they'd chat back and forth about all kinds of stuff. That's kind of what they do on that show called The View, right? They're sitting there talking about all this stuff, pretending to be really intelligent, you know. And they probably really believe some of that stuff. But you can see they often don't like one another. But they're getting paid. They're making a living. It's just a job to them, right? They put in some time and they think about stuff. They don't go very, very deep. You know, their education is a kind of a spontaneous kind of not watching what you say and not controlling. They're not very good at personal censorship or control and they don't have mastery of their interjections. I just love it, huh? If I was going to teach a class on this, I'd be showing that show and I would be talking about it. It would be good for that, showing people now how not to have a good life. You know, teach them about applying moral wisdom. Show that show. Show them where they lack that. How they gang up on each other. How somebody differs with them. They want to shut them down and ridicule them rather than get to know them and get to know the good part of the other person. You're just going to forget 
what Patrick Henry and all these other people used to say about America, and they claim to be good Americans. They can't tell you much about it because they're so, oh, you didn't say that. I can't believe you said that, they'd say. Oh, man, where did you get that from? Like, it's, wow, how can you say something like that? Without even thinking that they say stupid things, too. Thank goodness people don't treat them the way they treat others. Because you get nowhere like that. As one ages and matures, one's conscience should take center stage, become the arbiter of right action. Listen, if somebody says things to me I don't think are very smart, I don't criticize them. I'll say things like, gee, that's interesting. I never thought of that before. And I wonder why they said that. Maybe I'm missing something. I have heard people say some really stupid things that were right. And I have said some really smart things that were wrong. Do you guys remember Carl Sagan? Remember I talked about him? What a great guy he was. Unfortunately, he died at 62. But he talked about all the great things they knew about Mars that people wrote PhDs on and wrote dissertations and defended them and got their doctorates and they were called doctor. And they were wrong. And they learned that when they landed on Mars, that 10 of the top things they were teaching were all wrong. And these are not stupid people. You see, we have to mature as we age. One's conscience should take center stage and become the arbiter of right action. If I hear something I don't agree with, I'll say, isn't that interesting? I don't agree with it, but is that person bad? No. Am I going to shut that person down? Why would I do that? They have a right to be heard like I do. Why would I ridicule them? They're just not where I am. Maybe there's hope for them, right? Or maybe there's hope for me, they're thinking. But we can be friends. Our acquaintances. We're fellow human beings. We're both infinitely unique. A central conflict of an informed conscience, friends, is the challenge of social conformity versus justice. Did you know that? A virtue versus conscience, such as prudence versus truth. Let me say that again, if I can remember it. I should replay this back, but I can't. A core conflict, a central conflict, a primary conflict of an informed conscience is the painful challenge of social conformity versus justice. Sometimes you have to give up justice to demand social conformity. So you shouldn't be doing that, should you? If you silence each other and tell them they're wrong, so shut up, you're not just. But you're demanding conformity to your ideas. And who does that? A tyrant. Tyrannical people. Why are they scared? People that tell you to shut up are often scared to hear what you have to say. Because it dislike, dislocates their life, right? So a central conflict of an informed conscience is the challenge of social conformity versus justice. Or we might say virtue versus conscience, such as prudent Prudence versus truth. We talked about that. Can you lie to hurt somebody's feel, not to hurt somebody's feelings? Isn't that prudence? 
but you're not going to tell the truth to be prudent, so what's the problem, see? Think about all this. Personal censorship and control. People are trying to do that to us from the day we were born. Don't dirty your diapers, Johnny. All right. Blow your nose, Mary. Don't use your shirt. Gee, Mom, I'm just a kid. You know? So think about these things. These are really important. You know, you probably didn't get too much of this in college. But we're talking about living the gentle life, which means building authentic self-esteem. Hmm? You know, there's fake self-esteem and authentic self-esteem. Do you know the difference? If you have authentic self-esteem, you reduce making negative personal judgments. doesn't matter so much. So you make less of them. If you, have, if you have developed authentic self-esteem, you respect other people even sometimes before you respect yourself. And a great sign of authentic self-esteem is you develop, you have the capacity and you actually do it. Develop balanced relationships where you own no one and no one owns you. Yet you can speak and they can speak. Isn't that nice? People who do not have authentic self-esteem are trying to manipulate you, right? And let you think that you're a thoughtful person. Oh, they're a, they're a good person. I think so-and-so is good. Because look at the good things he does for me. But you don't know what he says about you behind your back, right? Versus somebody who really is good. Authentic self-esteem flows from the intrinsic goodness of a well-developed conscience. There's so many, so many books on self-esteem. The best one I ever read was written by a guy named Nathaniel Brandon. I remember I had a talk with him one time. And Fort Lauderdale, Florida, he was there to give a conference and a seminar. Best book I ever read on psychology self-esteem back in the 70s, I think it was. I went to a seminar in California. Where was this place? In Santa Barbara. I think back in the 90s. And they were having people talking about psychology of self-esteem. It was a great institute down there. I loved the place. Had a good friend that worked there. It's called Fielding Institute back then. It was a great place. And they had a symposium on self-esteem. So I'm there with the students, all PhD students, didn't be doctors in psychology and whatnot like that. And they started talking about this book, The Psychology of Self-Esteem. One student did as if it was brand new. He just discovered it. And he's coming up to me, tell me, you ever heard of this? You ever heard of that? Do you know this? Do you know that? Just loved it. The guy was so excited about it and interested. And he brought his girlfriend along and she was into this too. They're going to develop their self-esteem. And they said to me, have you ever heard of Nathaniel Brandon? This is a brand new book on self-esteem, just published. So I had him open it up, go to the first cover and look at how many editions there were, how many printings there were. And there were a ton of them. 
because it was a best-selling book since the 70s. It wasn't new. And my question was, what made him think it was new? How come he's just hearing of that now? If you're studying self-esteem and you know anything about self-esteem, you had to read that book. It was that good. Even the state of California at one time really got into this kick about developing self-esteem of its citizens. Yeah, they actually had a serious talk about that. They were going to fund programs to help our citizens of California develop their self-esteem. And they were going to use that book. Yeah, so read it. Read the difference between authentic self-esteem and inauthentic self-esteem. And why you will respect others, even before oneself sometimes. And you reduce making negative personal judgments if you have authentic self-esteem. So you have to wonder about these people in the view, right? So, the virtue of an informed conscience, you can build your virtue or compromise your conscience. You cannot do both, right? Are you going to build your virtue? Are you going to compromise your, your conscience? Time for a sip of my water. Excuse me. Ah, that's so refreshing. Hmm. So, we can talk ourselves out of something by remembering the sound side. You know? Or we can make virtuous choices by listening to an informed conscience that eliminates fear. They are not the same. Talking ourselves out of something or making an informed judgment by listening to an informed conscience. By making a virtuous choice, right? If we compromise our conscience, we're not going to build our virtue. If we build our virtue, we're going to inform our conscience. You can't do both. It's an either-or proposition. Remember I talked about people whose asserting reality is different than it is? I talked about there's no truth to people like that. So we can move beyond the confines of coercive development of childhood. Or we can add a deeper dimension to our lives by embracing the potency of growth introduced by virtue. Growth is very potent. Growth gives us so much advantages. We outgrow the bad choices of childhood. We're able to develop a new types of confidence based on personal strength. We're able to outgrow the interjections. We are recognized as being good people because we are good people. That's a potency thing. You can be very powerful and scare people away. If you're potent, you know what? You attract people. Potency is a different thing than power. We can move beyond the confines of coercive development. Coerce people to develop in childhood. If you do this, Tommy, I'm going to give you a candy bar. If you do that, Mary, I'm going to buy you a new bicycle. So we're bribing them. So their virtues are based on bribery, right? No bribery, no virtues. So that does mean if the price is right, they'll give up their virtues when they're older. They can be bribed, right, to do bad things. It's got to become an intrinsic value to them because life is better. And they need to learn it. 
be educated. We can become a virtuous person to develop personal strengths such as resiliency, or we can carry on the legacy of living under the influence of internalized rules and regulations disconnected from the present. What I'm saying there is that things in the past, the interjections of the past, they had a place back there. But we have to outgrow it. We have to do better. We have to be smarter. We have to learn new things. In Boy Scouts, we'd say, on my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country, to obey the Scout laws and all that stuff and get into trust and all that stuff. Let's get into confidence, not trust. Confidence is earned. Trust is so rare. Trust is a divine concept because you can trust God. But like the guy at X-Files says, when he's dying, trust no one. So we can become a virtuous person to develop personal strengths such as resiliency. Isn't there a lot of talk right now about resiliency, the resilient person, the resilient organization, the pandemic can put resiliency at the head of the line? Resiliency means a certain kind of maturity, a certain kind of virtue. We can become a virtuous person to develop personal strengths such as resiliency or we can carry on the legacy of living under the influence of internalized rules and regulations disconnected from the present. In 1986-1987, I was working in the city of San Francisco on a contract putting a new billing system for the city of San Francisco for the water department. And we had a rule. You had to be on campus and the purpose had to do the job between 10 and 2 every day. And the rest of the time you could work from home. We needed to be there several hours a day because it worked well. Some people need to be around other people to do a better job. No matter what they tell you, you have to. Some people, people need people. Or we wouldn't have so many people. And then here's the other thing. Then there was time you could work from home because you need not to be bothered. Now the trouble with the pandemic today are people working from home. Are working harder than they worked at the job. I could give you some statistics about how much people work at the, on the, in the office. How many hours they don't work actually in the office. Coming in from work, home and going to home. How much time they lose doing that at the lunch, talking around, visiting friends, going to the restroom. How much productivity do they actually have a day? They actually are more productive at home. Think about these companies that have you working at home. They're having you use your computer, your electricity. They're probably not paying you for that. They're not probably giving you a stipend for your resources that you're using for them to do your job. And then they call you all time of day. They can call you in the morning, early, before work, after work, at night, in the morning, at three in the morning. Some people are working more than they ever did in two days in a single day. And they're not being paid extra. Hmm. Where's the virtue in all of this? It's going to burn out, right? People are getting burnt out with it. They can't get away from the office at all. 
There has to be some rules. They haven't worked it out yet. There's still some employers that believe they can't trust you to work at home because they're using that trust word wrong. You see? So there's things that influence us in our life. And our rules and regulations have to be born in the present, can't be disconnected from the present. One is the rules about working at home, about being a good boss to my people who are at home. This is a scary time for a lot of people. You know? So let me share an insight with you. Gentleness is a highly personal behavior, isn't it? Gentleness results whenever a person overcomes the killer attitudes of prejudice and indifference, poor motivation and authentic self-esteem and self-destruction. Think about all those things. Prejudice and indifference, poor motivation, inauthentic self-esteem. We just talked about that. And self-destruction. Haven't mentioned that too much. Are the killer attitudes to gentleness. If you, pre if you're, if there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with being discriminatory. Yeah. I like good food over bad food. That's discrimination. But I'm not prejudiced. That's the difference. There's only two things I don't like in life. One is prejudiced and those who are prejudiced. That's a joke. But think about it. If you have prejudice, you're not really gentle in your heart. You're being controlled by interjections. And it works every place. I see it all the time. Indifference to people. Just indifference to the human situation. You can't be gentle. If you're indifferent, you wouldn't care enough to be gentle. Social paths are pretty indifferent. They don't care what happens to you. As long as they manipulate you, they don't care. They might pretend, but they really, in their heart, they don't care. Now, if you're a psychopath, you delight when you hurt somebody. Yeah, but if you're a sociopath, you really just don't care what happens to somebody. You could be highly functioning, but not shared any tears. I once saw a little girl at the age of three. Let me think this out. She's at the age of two. Cry when people in that tidal wave got killed at the turn of the century. Do you remember that? The major tidal wave in Indonesia? And all those people got killed? She actually started crying. Those poor, poor people, she said to me. This girl was, wasn't even three years old yet. She had empathy. You know how unusual that is? Empathy, that she could actually cry and say, those poor, poor people. Now think about adults who are totally indifferent. Went their whole life and were indifferent to you, me, or anybody about anything. Didn't care. 
So you have people that are prejudiced and people that are indifferent. They can't be gentle. They're not even gentle with the people they're not prejudiced against. It's just a con. Poor motivation. What does it mean to have poor motivation? Well, you really don't care much about self-care, do you? Certainly don't want to put out any forest fires. Surely don't want to do any operations. Don't want to go to school necessarily. You just want to get by. It's not that because you're comfortable. You'll complain all the time. A lot of people with poor motivation complain all the time that they're being left out because people are prejudiced against them. There's is a motivation problem. I mean, I've actually heard conversations of people in college saying they don't believe they should have to learn math. Why do I need to learn math? Why do I need to have to? Listen, I know people that went to high school can't give you a change for a $10 bill. I'm sure you know people like that too. They're going to have a tough life. Wow. I was talking to a guy recently that runs a restaurant. He had a bunch of applicants he's trying to hire. Of course, all these restaurants are trying to hire, right? So he had to hire a bunch of people. He hired 15 people. Had 15 hired 15 people. Yes. Wow, 15 people he hired. Five showed up. I know the general manager real well. I like him. He's really a sharp guy. He used to live in New York. Had a big job in New York. Now he lives in Fort Lauderdale. He runs some restaurants. Fort Lauderdale he lives in. Orlando runs some restaurants. And so he hired these 15 people and only five showed up. The other 10 didn't even call in. Well, the five showed up. He had them read the manual of the company, the employee manual, and they couldn't read it and understand it. One could. And then he had them give him change for a $10 bill, and they couldn't do it. Five of them couldn't. Five out of five couldn't give them. Of the five that came in that he had hired, they couldn't read the company manual, and they couldn't give him change for a $10 bill. And they're all high school graduates. This is our tax dollars at work. Our property tax dollars are not educating our kids. There's no excuse for that. If you can't count, you don't know if somebody's cheating you when they pay you. Can you imagine a bad employer saying, hey, come on, Bill, I'm going to give you $1,000 an hour. And you give them a dime. You know, Come on. There's people like that out there. People can't even count the money they're supposed to be getting. They can't even do the simple math to know if they were paid for the hours they worked. That should be all right to anybody. But now you have high school in, in Oregon. They're saying you don't have to know math to get a high school diploma or even know how to read. Right? Can't even read your diploma. What good is that? Who's going to let you go to college? You think the Oregon, University of Oregon is going to let you in? Of course not. These people are guaranteeing you're going to be a failure. Ah, another water break. So you're going to have a failure on your hands. Because they're sensitive and they believe in equity. No, they don't. And they're not sensitive. What are they doing? They're increasing self-destruction. So these people are going to have inauthentic self-esteem. So they will never be gentle. Their life will be too rough and too harsh. Too challenging. They won't have the skills to overcome it. Some of them will turn to crime. Because they have to feed their families that they'll have. And they'll ha probably have four or five kids and never get married. 
This is not okay. If you thought about applied moral behavior, this is not the kind of society you would build. And gentleness would come along. Because we get rid of prejudice and indifference, so we'd at least minimize it. We'd increase the motivation of our children and other adults, not just children. So I came out tonight of a grocery store. And there was a man, I was waiting for my wife, she was in a store shopping. And there was a man, an elderly gentleman in a wheelchair, waiting there at the door, the exit. And I was there like 30, 35 minutes. I did wait in and then I went outside, get some fresh air. And he was still there, just waiting there. And he looked just horrible. He looked like he was having a tough time. I felt so bad for him. So I walked up to him. I said, sir, are you waiting on somebody? Is there any way I can help you? And he looks at me and he says, and I will quote, I just want your money. What? I just want your money. I'm sitting here to get money. Just like that. And I don't happen to carry change around anymore. You know? And I just, I just, just don't do that. I just don't, I don't even have a dollar bill in my, I don't even carry a dime. I just don't carry change. I quit doing that a long time ago. I don't buy much, you know, I'm past the age where I want anything much. I just want a simple life, a gentle life. So I looked at this guy and I felt so bad for him. And I said to him, you know, I, I don't even have a dime to give you. I really apologize. He was so unbelievably rude. He didn't say, thank you for checking on me. He didn't say, oh, thank you for being concerned. He was offended. But I wasn't going to hand a, <laughs> a lot of cash to him. So he wanted me to hurry up, move away so he can talk to the next guy. But he wasn't even nice. He wasn't even respectful. You see, there's no gentleness there. Poor guy. I don't know why he's in a wheelchair. Could have been a real problem. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe that's how he gets money. I don't really know. But my, my drive was to make a difference. Because it's important. If I had some money, I would have probably given it to him. Just, listen, if you're going to err, you err for the right reason. If you're going to err, err for the right reason. Don't err for the wrong reason. One time I was in London, a friend of mine was in London to give some presentations. We walked down the street and this girl runs up to us, doesn't even have any shoes on, dressed very poorly. She, please, please help us, please, please. I really need something. I have to feed my two children. You don't know. So, of course, we gave her something. Next night, we're walking down the same street, getting ready to go and deliver our presentation. She runs up. Same story. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. She says, I already hit you two guys up. I'm sorry. Right? Quick, quick. Get going. Get going. She says, she didn't want us to be in the way so she could hit up the next person. Right? <laughs> Absolutely no conscience about it. No shame about it. Listen, there was a show called 60 Minutes. I, everybody knows what that is. I believe uh, it was on 60 Minutes years ago. I saw this show where this guy was in New York and he had a school where he was teaching people how to be beggars on the street, how to get marks, certain rules that you follow to know who's going to give you money. So he's teaching this school to people. And then so the CBS correspondent looked at some of these guys who went to school and were out on the streets begging and followed them home. 
Well, they had just luxury cars living in really nice houses. They weren't broke at all. And they were making money panhandling, and they were hardly declaring any taxes. See? No way to check it, right? I'm not saying they're all like that. Some people are really neat, and they stand out there, and they do it. But you never know. And I remember watching this guy do this school, and they were paying him, all right, a salary. Almost like that Charles Dickens stole about those kids that were beggars. Remember that? Oh, well, but but how are we going to live as a human being? How are we going to apply our moral wisdom? How do we wade through all of this stuff? If you're a prayerful person, you pray for them. You know what a great prayer is if you're a prayerful person? Dear God, I pray for those who have no one to pray for them. Wow, and they will never know it. So, just remember this. If you want to apply your moral wisdom, you will develop gentleness. That's a sign that you're on the right path. And to do that, you have to conquer prejudice and indifference, poor motivation, authentic self-esteem, and self-destruction. All right? So, I think that's important. So, fact of lifetime. Here's a fact of life for you. Since the application of moral wisdom is the sign of adult maturity, we require a path that illuminates our way of informing our conscience. And this journey then ignites the vocation to cultivate the virtues that form character. How many times have you heard me say this? It's that important. It is a wonderful fact. I'll say it again. Maybe you will memorize it. Since the application of moral wisdom is the sign of adult maturity. So if you want to be an adult mature and mature adult, how well do you apply moral wisdom? They go together. So to be able to develop this moral wisdom, we require a path that illuminates the way to informing the conscience. So how do we know we're informing our conscience? What is that path to inform our conscience? There's a good way and there's a bad way. Right? So this journey then is your vocation. Why do you live in this life? To inform your conscience. So you can apply moral wisdom. And be a contributor human being that participates in the joy of life. Right? Because you cultivate the virtues. And these virtues form your character. So if you want to have a good character, you have to live good virtues. And developing good virtues are cultivated as a vocation. And the path of that vocation is ignited. Okay, so the journey is lit. And this journey allows you to inform your conscience because it's illuminated and it paves the way, shows the way. By informing your conscience, you become an adult. And as an adult with a certain maturity, develop an emerging from virtue that allows you to apply moral wisdom.
And the fruits and rewards of that, my friends, is a simpler life that keeps you out of trouble, that allows you to be gentle. And I'm a little bit selfish here, and the reason it's so important to be gentle is you will have more joy in your life. It's better for you. You see, it's a formula. It's a formula for success. The opposite is a formula for failure. Lack of gentleness, a lack of motivation, a lack of all those things I talked about. It's a formula for failure. Sometimes people say to me, I don't know what wrong and what went wrong in my life, Ray. I said, You did. You refused to adopt the good things you knew to be good. I say that to gamblers a lot who go to Vegas. You know about Vegas, right? It's a city built by losers. People winning at the casinos didn't build those those casinos, right? The people that owned those casinos had to make money from what? From losers, the losers. And an attorney, a friend of mine, and an attorney, used to say he didn't go to Vegas much because it's a city built by losers. He went once a year because once a year they had a legal conference in Vegas, right? Who goes to Vegas? The lawyers. Makes sense, right? So, Satan was walking down a path in heaven one day. There's a big gate that separates heaven from hell. And it has to be repaired every, this fence, not a gate, this fence has to be repaired every five years. So one year Satan fixes it, next five years later God has to fix it. So, God was doing his inspection, walking down the, the fence, and he looks at it and it's falling down. And he yells over the fence, Hey, Satan, it's time to fix the fence. The guy says, I'm not going to do it. God says, No, it's your turn. It's five years is up. Houston, I did it last time. I don't care about any of that stuff. I don't follow rules. Who do you think you're talking to? God says, You better fix the fence. And Satan says, What are you going to do about it? He said, I'm going to sue you. You know what Satan said to him? Where are you going to find the attorneys? Joke, all right? An attorney actually told me that joke, so don't go to anger me, right? That's kind of funny, huh? All right. So, the application of moral wisdom is the sign of adult maturity. Just remember that. So if you're a grown-up, then you're morally mature. If you have a good conscience, you know how to apply it. And that should simplify your life. Say yes when you mean yes, no when you mean no. You know? And you find it works pretty well. Listen, you know how I learned all this stuff? By paying attention to life and looking at the people around me and listening to them, finding out works, what works doesn't work. And of course, getting a good education doesn't hurt. The love study. I'll tell you one more before I leave. God says to St. Peter, listen, it's time for the annual inspection on earth. Go down there and check things. I don't see as many people in churches there used to be. I'm getting a little bit concerned that they might be losing their way. Why don't you go down there, Pete, and see what they're doing? Find out why less people are in church. So St. Peter goes down there and he goes to Florida, right? Of course he goes to Florida. Everybody plays golf in Florida, right? 
So he goes down there and a year goes by, no St. Peter. Two years go by, three years go by. Finally, on the fourth year, St. Peter gets back in heaven. Jesus says to him, what on earth is going on? What took you four years? Even here, time, that's a long time. St. Peter says, Lord, I'm so sorry. He says, I just tell you, you don't have to worry. The churches are full every Sunday. But he says, the churches are not. I look at the churches and they're half empty. No, no, no. There's a new church. They have a new place. It's called the golf course. What do you mean it's called the golf course? Yeah, these guys get out there and they get this little ball and they have this club. Every few minutes they're, they're calling out your name. They're really religious now, Lord. They think about you just about every time they swing that club. I hear them call out your name. Hallelujah. I don't think he thought it was funny, right? But being gentle means a sense of humor. Being gentle means not uptight. What's that old song? You know when to fold them? The guy that did that song. Kind of liked him. Kenny Rogers. Now, you know what? He was a humble guy. He used to talk about how many great singers there were out there that didn't get the break he got because they were better than him. Know when to fold them. That's what gentleness is about. Knowing when to fold them, right? Knowing when not to upset the other person. So what this is all about that we've covered in part six is important issues about gentleness and why it's so important about simplifying your life because you have a better life. So guess what? Our time is up on episode 10, part six. Thank you for joining me on this intriguing discussion about applied moral wisdom. I will be back with episode 10, part seven next week. I kind of enjoyed this. I hope you got something out of it sharing some of these scenarios with you and some of the things that I've experienced and seen in life. And I know you can relate to a lot of them. And I hope that you begin to think about developing deeper moral wisdom and applying it in your life. So life will be easier for you in time. And uh, God bless you and thank you. It's um, after two o'clock in the morning again. So I'll let you go and uh, talk to you next time and take care of yourself. And be joyful.